0: Uh, Welcome, good to see you, and uh, today we begin uh, the sixth chapter of Daniel, and um, if you're following us on page eight of the notes, I want to make uh, one or two introductory comments and a little bit on the board Um, that may not even be terribly helpful, but uh, I want to remind you of a couple of things about chapter six. Um, If you were not here last week, you may sort of forget uh, where we are, but uh, the first six chapters of the book of Daniel are very historical, and they're chronological. You you know what I mean by that, don't you? I mean, it's just a series of events in the order in which they occur. Now, chapter seven will break that, and the rest that's next week, so don't worry about that at this point, but this is the last uh, chapter uh, where the focus is really on Daniel and his role in these various empires. The other uh, point by way of introduction is remember, and that's what we did last week, chapter 5 is the account of the collapse of the Babylonian Empire. And uh, Belshazzar was the ruler at that point. Anyway, they were conquered by the Persians. And in your notes, uh, in your note packet if you have that, uh, on page 24 is a map of the Persian Empire. And I uh, don't have an awful lot uh, that we'll, we'll deal with there. This isn't a, a detailed history class, but if you are interested in that, that map is, is, is a very fine map, actually, the reason I chose it. But you see that the Persian Empire was a massive, massive empire. Mm-hmm. And it, it extended from Egypt, they had conquered Egypt, all the way to India. And as if you also want to just take a note, they conquered uh, what today would be Turkey. Then it was called Anatolia. But on the very western end of that were the Greek city-states that had been planted there. So that's very important because Persia and Greece are going to start to bang into each other. But that's, we're not there yet. So Persia is just a, it's a massive empire, uh, one of the largest in the history of, of the world. And the Bible is focusing on that here in chapter 6. Because Daniel, as he had been a key leader in the Babylonian Empire, is now a key leader in the Persian Empire, which is really quite amazing. But it certainly would indicate to us that the Persian rulers saw in Daniel the same thing the Babylonian rulers saw in Daniel. Do you you understand what I mean by that sentence? (coughs) I mean the wisdom, the skills, and of course, we cannot disregard the, the sovereignty of God in making sure that he is in that role. As uh, as the key ruler of, of Persia, Andrew, you can sit next my, my to me. My dad's coming. He'll oh, okay. And, All right. He'd okay. to sit closer. <laughs> That's fine. <laughs> so, um, anyway, the other thing about this that is kind of helpful for the background of what we'll read, Cyrus is the overall ruler of the Persian Empire. He had given to Darius, he has a number of names in history. Guberu is probably the name that, again, doesn't mean much to you, but he is a governor, but he is over the whole area from Babylonia to the west, which would include uh, into Israel. So that's where Daniel is. And so Daniel now, then is serving him. So in a way, Daniel is like the third most powerful person in the Persian Empire at this period. All right? The other thing, you're going to see this in the, uh, in the introductory part of chapter 6. What Cyrus had done is he divided the empire, again, that massive empire, into 120 provinces. They were called satraps. And each one of them had a governor. Each one of them had a ruler, okay? And by the way, this goes ahead now, and it's just a little piece of trivia. Uh, the province called Beyond the River, that was the name of the province, is Judah, is Judea it's that's was that that was one of the provinces and that'll be important because mm-hmm. under under uh, under Cyrus he will issue an edict allowing the Jews to go back to their homeland and then we'll go back to that province. so I'm just saying all that because that's this is a highly organized highly structured Empire and the Bible uh, doesn't explain this to us it doesn't give us a lot of the details but we know all this was tremendous amount of material that has been discovered in the archaeology. We have discovered the library of ancient Persia. We've discovered the library that, uh, that uh, is affiliated with the Chronicles of Cyrus. We know a great deal about this empire. And it's just with really the amazing and, and it's the important thing is everything that material is telling us is confirmed in the Bible. Or another way of saying it, the Bible and this historical material are absolutely in sync. And you would expect that to occur. But it builds the confidence, that, at least I think it does, that what the Bible is saying about history is trustworthy.
1: Was there a time, Jim, when the, those were lost? Or, I mean,
0: well, they were lost for hundreds and hundreds yeah, of years. Yeah. Almost all of this stuff that is corroborating a lot of what the Bible has been discovered in the last hundred years. It was really in the early 20th century, and it's largely because of the European conquest of these areas and they were building their empires, Britain, France, so on, that uh, they sent uh, significant uh, expeditions to explore and and do do the archaeological digs that uncovered these, this stuff, because Persia, that that is so important because of the role Persia played in this particular period of biblical history, but also in terms of world history, because that is the that that's what's <coughs> going to start to happen when the West and the east start to fight. And that's Persia and Alexander the Great. And that's that's gonna be very important because Alexander's gonna conquer the Persian Empire. What you see in that map, Alexander's gonna conquer that. Which is really amazing. This young guy, you know, he's in his 20s. He dies when he's 31 years old in 323 BC. He conquered, he conquered everything that was known in the world at that time from Western perspective. Uh, he's an amazing man. Alright, so that, with that background and that's all I'm doing just because it can help you hopefully get a little bit of a understanding of what is the Bible talking about here like in verse 1, in verse 2, and verse 3. Any questions about that? That was a horrible overview but it's hopefully enough to get you oriented. Verse 1 chapter 6. It seemed to Darius to appoint 120 satraps over the kingdom. Now I just explained what that is that they should be in charge of the whole kingdom. And over them three commissioners, of whom Daniel was one, that these satraps might be accountable to them, and that the kings might not deserve loss. Then, verse 3, this Daniel began distinguishing himself among the commissioners and satraps, because he possessed an extraordinary spirit, and the king planned to appoint him over the entire kingdom. Now, if you follow what those first three verses are telling you, the empire is divided in 120 provinces, They have three commissioners administering these, so presumably they divide it. Each one gets about 40. And Daniel is so talented, so gifted, that he is considering, I'm going to make Daniel number one over all this. He's going to be the prime minister of the empire. Now, that's a Western English way of putting it, but in a way, that's really what he's going to be the prime minister over the whole empire. So it's, it's just, again, an indication, and we saw it with the Babylonians, it's just an indication God has superintended these events that Daniel is in this remarkable position and his skills, which are God-given, and his abilities, which are God-given, are what, is, what are distinguishable. And these, these secular rulers notice that. But the other thing to remember about this And you, and this is—you have to always keep this kind of in the forefront. Remember, he's a Jew. This is elevating a Jew, a conquered person, part of the conquered province that they had decimated under Nebuchadnezzar, and then the Persians just inherited all that. So he's talking about elevating a Jew, not a Persian, not a Mede. Absolutely which is what verse 4 is all about. So it's just, you see God in control, you see God superintending things, but now you see the reaction. Verse 4, then the commissioners and satraps, now these would be the officials of the empire, those, those other two commissioners plus the other provincial governors, began trying to find a ground of accusation against Daniel, In regard to government affairs, but they could find no ground of accusation or evidence of corruption, inasmuch as he was faithful and no negligence or corruption was found in him. Wouldn't you want that to be said of you? That you make enemies because of your integrity. And your enemies start to plot, we're going to get rid of this guy. So let's try, try and dig up some dirt on him. What was the problem with Daniel? So like they couldn't find any dirt. <laughs> dirt. I mean, he is a man of impeccable integrity. That's almost a trite phrase these days. But for Daniel, he really was. They couldn't find anything against him. There was absolutely no lack of integrity, no corruption. He's not taking bribes, he's not... He is just an amazing man of integrity. So, you know, they couldn't find anything against him. So now they're going to manipulate things to such a way where Daniel has to choose the state of Persia or God. And that's what they're going to force. It seems like
1: there's a current parallel there between the current events of uh, our country and uh, those back this many years ago uh, in that a person can be forthright, diligent, um, and ex- exceptionally good in his management skills, and still, when he practices his faith, they attack the faith, not the diligence, not the good decisions, but the faith. mm mm-hmm. And, and it's, you know, it's happening currently True. in our country. And so it seems like to me that this is a spiritual battle. And today we have a spiritual battle going on in America. It just seems like there's a parallel.
0: Well, I, I think, and that would be, that actually would actually probably be true at every major period in human history, but it certainly is applicable to us today. And I think there there are two lessons here. One, um, Christians who are serious about their faith and their faith, they live, which means their integrity and all of those things, trustworthy, faithful, and so on, they can serve in positions of significant authority, significant authority in business, in law, in education, as well as in church, etc., as well as in government. However, as in all of those situations, power power has a, a, often a detrimental effect on people, and those who serve with you or serve under you can be resentful, and they will not be able to do anything but attack your faith. And that's what, there was nothing they could find in Daniel's life. So let's get him into it. Let's manipulate situations so that he is in a position where he must choose between the Persian state in obedience to it and his devotion and obedience to God. And that's exactly what they do. They manipulate the situation so he must choose. In verse 4, excuse me, verse 5, we shall not find any ground of accusation against this Daniel unless we find it against him with regard to the law of his God. And they're they're assuming, and, and in effect, correctly assuming, that the moral law of God and the obligations that he has as a Jew to God are going to get him to a position where he has to choose. And that's that's what exactly, exactly happens. Then these commissioners and satraps came by agreement to the king and spoke to him as follows: King Darius live forever? All the commissioners of the kingdom, the prefects, satraps, high officials, governors have consulted together that the king should establish a statute and enforce an injunction that anyone who makes a petition to any god or man besides you, O king, for thirty days shall be cast into the lion's den. Okay, now that when you think about that, that's almost a uh, it's an absurd law that they're proposing but yet it feeds the ego of these rulers it feeds the ego of any ruler you are so great king you are so fantastic king let's make a law that facilitates and helps to establish legally how great you really are so for thirty days nobody can Make any petition, any request of any God except you. Now, King established the injunction, signed the document so that it may not be charged according to the law, change, excuse me, according to the law of the Medes and persons, which may not be revoked. Now, that v- verse 8 is a is an historically accurate statement as well as a biblically informed statement. In the Medo-Persian Empire, when a law was made, it could not be changed. It could not be revoked. That's why sometimes sometimes that works its way into our language and we say we have a saying. Well, this isn't the law of the Medes and the Persians. Did you ever hear anybody say that? Maybe not? Okay. I guess that's an indication of how old I am. People used to say that, but they don't say it anymore. But, um it's a, what it means is, and historically it's accurate, once a law in the Medo-Persian Empire was made, it couldn't be changed. Now, why the, one of the passages in the Bible where that is really helpful to understand is in the book of Esther. Esther is a, I think you know at least a little bit about that book, but Esther was the queen of the Persian emperor, Xerxes. The same Xerxes who invaded Greece. Battle of Thermopylae and Marathon. You ever hear of those battles? It was her husband. But in that particular book, one of the advisors of the king gets the king to get a, pass a law that is to annihilate all the Jews. It's to wipe them out. His name was Haman. But that law was not revoked. But what the king did then, I'm going to make another law. The Jews have the right to defend themselves. So as that first law is carried out, there's a second law. They can't revoke this law. But a second law is passed where the Jews can defend themselves. And that um, um, that's exactly what happened. And at the end of the book of, of Esther, uh, the Jews fight and they preserve themselves, they protect themselves. And that had, that became a very very important holiday, not a biblically based holiday, but a very important holiday, and it's still celebrated today. Many of you know what it is. Hmm? Well, it doesn't have anything to do with our class. I shouldn't get it's a bunny trail. Forget it. I'm not going to go any further. you cannot play our curiosity like that. It's yeah. Well, I I don't mean I don't mean to, but it's it it's a holiday that um, for the for the Jewish people it's almost like Christmas, right? And they they give gifts, the kids they have parties, they have special uh, uh, celebrations, and every time they celebrate this, and as you know, the Jewish calendar is a is a lunar calendar, so it changes. You know what I mean? Every Uh, It's not like our calendar. So every year it's a little bit about 10, 11 days uh, uh, earlier. But whenever they celebrate that holiday, whatever day of the week it is, they read the story of Esther. And the little kids, as they're hearing the story of Esther being read, and if you've ever read the book, it's not a really long book. It's it's not a long biblical book, but it's a historical book. When Haman's name is mentioned in the book, and he's mentioned quite a bit, the kids, boo, 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 Haman. And then when Mordecai's name is uh, read, they cheer Mordecai because Mordecai was the hero of the, of the story who encourages Esther to defend the Jewish people and get the king to make that law and so on. So it's really, it's a neat holiday for the Jewish people. And it's, it's a holiday that they celebrate the defense of the Jewish people against the Persian edict to destroy them and annihilate them. It's one of the two major periods in human history, where there was a systematic, governmental-oriented attempt to annihilate the Jewish people from planet Earth. Haman during the Persian Empire, and what's the other one? The Holocaust. The Holocaust in the 20th century under Adolf Hitler. So it's uh, it's an I'm am really got on a bunny trail there, but that. That point in verse 8 that we just read is a valid, historically documented (laughs) point. Once a law was made in the Medo-Persian Empire, it could not be revoked.
1: What's it called, John? The holiday. Just the holiday? It's
0: It's, um, not Hanukkah. No, no, no. It's... um,
1: it's, it's, take place? Now we know why you didn't want to know it. Going. It's all right. Let's no, I don't know why. you can I I've got a question about the two events wiping out. Isn't there a going? That's Seeing now from
0: the rank. Well, no, let's, let's not get into that. <laughs> <laughs> Is it a one-day situation or a festival? Purine, purine, purine. 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 P-U-R-I-M, yeah, P-U-R-I-M. The, the day, P-U-R-I-M, Purim.
1: Yeah.
0: And, yes, what
1: I have a question. Uh, I have to go back just a little bit. When they get a decree that anyone who prays any God during the next 30 days, doesn't that have a time limit? I mean, would that 30 days expire, and, help, and, and that law wouldn't even be effective? That's right,
0: now? that's right. That's right.
1: So they watched him good during those 30 days. That's
0: right. I mean, that's, you, you can see what they're doing. It, it's very specific, and it's targeting Daniel. But the king is interested in this because it feeds his ego, which is you know, a normal thing for a king. And, you know, that's how great they are. So King Darius, it tells us in verse 9, signed the document. So it goes into effect. Verse 10. Now when Daniel knew that the document was signed, he entered his house. Now in his roof chamber, he had windows open toward Jerusalem. And the continue, he continued kneeling on his knees three times a day, praying and giving thanks before his God, and this is very important, as he had been doing previously. So he understands what these individuals are doing. They're setting him up. Darius doesn't understand what's going on. He just loves the law because it feeds his ego and and his position in the the government. But Daniel says, okay, I must choose. And again, if you go back to to verse 5, they, they, they get Daniel into position. This is very manipulative, but it's really well thought through. We must get Daniel into position. He has to choose between the state of Persia and God. I should say his God is how they would phrase it. And so Daniel must face now, do I change my normal pattern of praying and worshiping each day? tells us in verse 10 he did this three times a day. What does he choose to do? I will, I will serve, love, worship, and pray to my God, regardless of the laws of the Median person in power. So in a very real sense, I don't want to make anything political about this, but in a very real sense, he's choosing civil disobedience. It is a, it is a principle that is in the word of God. You obey the state until it's a sin to obey the state. Now that creates all kinds of issues. I don't really shouldn't have said that because that could get his uh, 97 bunny trails here, but Daniel is choosing. It's, it's similar to what you see in Acts chapter four and Acts chapter five. Peter, James and John are given an edict. Do not preach Jesus as the Messiah in Jerusalem. What do they do? They preach Jesus as Messiah in Jerusalem. And what happened to them? They're thrown in jail. And they say to him, the Sanhedrin says, did you not know of this law that we issue? Oh, yes, we knew it, but we must obey God, not man. We were given an assignment by our Savior before he went back to the Father to preach and declare me as the Messiah in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. So we're starting in Jerusalem. So we're going to preach in Jerusalem. But you're not supposed to. Well, we obey God, not man. And I mean, it's just, and that's hard, but it's a clear edict from God. Daniel is in that position. And he says, I will accept the consequences. If this means I'm going to be killed, throw it into the lion's den, then I'm doing what God wants me to do. I'm not going to stop worshiping and praying him just because Darius is in an order. He's been manipulated in his position I'm still going to obey God. So he keeps keep doing what he normally did. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and supplication before his God. The collusion of all these rulers. And they say, we got him. We got him. And they approached and spoke before the king. Verse 12. The king's injunction did you not sign an injunction? Any man of expedition, any god or man beside you, O king, for 30 days will be cast in the lion's den. The king said, The statement is true according to the law of the Medes and Persians, not be revoked. Verse 13. Then they answered and spoke before the king. Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, now that is really, really, really important. They're reminding him. <coughs> And Daniel is reminding us because he wrote this book. He's a Jew. Pays no attention to you, O king, or to the injunction which you signed, but keeps making his petition three times a day. Verse 14. And as soon as the king heard this statement, he was deeply distressed and set his mind on delivering Daniel. And even until sunset, he kept exerting himself to rescue him. What did King Darius realize? Set up. He was set up. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. He was set up. He understands. But he all remember verse uh, eight and verse twelve, once the law's made, it can't be revoked in the a Persian Empire. But he's trapped. He's got. He's he's done. He is going to have to follow through with the injunction and throw Daniel into the lion's den. <clears throat> verse fifteen. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said, Recognize, O king, that it is the law of the Medes and the Persons. No injunction or statute with the king established and so may be changed. And the king gave orders, and Daniel was brought in and cast into the lion's den. Now, Daniel is probably about 83 years old here. This is, this is near the end of his life. We, I mean, we know, we know all of that both in terms of extra-biblical material plus what's in the Bible. The king spoke and said, your God whom you constantly serve will himself deliver you. Now that's, who's saying that? The king. But I mean, now notice he doesn't say my God. He says your God. Now this, that's just one of these really significant questions that it's impossible to answer because we just don't know enough. But Darius had watched Daniel in his service, had watched all that he had done as a man of integrity, but also knew about his faith in his God. And so he must have concluded, this God, this God is going to rescue him. So a stone was brought and laid over the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the signet rings of his nobles so that nothing might be changed in regard to Daniel. Two things. We this idea of lion's dens, we have found those. There are a number, archaeologically, there are a number of these have been found in the, the various Persian capitals. There are a couple of Persian capitals. There's a winter capital, there's a summer capital, and now Susa, Batana, there are others. There are lion's dens all around. So this was a normal well, maybe not normal this was not an unusual form of execution. And that's just as they just are described. It was a den, and there were lions that they did not feed, and obviously the idea was you throw somebody in there, they're going to become the food of the lion. In other words, they'll be killed, ripped apart. be very graphic, can't you? That also
1: control maintenance costs.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yes. The other thing is these signet rings. We have found literally hundreds of these. And what they would do, it was a ring, the ring that the king wore. And they would take clay like this and roll the ring in the clay and then it would harden and that would be a seal. You understand what I mean? That's what it says he did. And to break those seals, only the king could break those seals, was a capital crime. In other words, you'd be thrown in there too. So you, you see, uh, I mean, historically, all that is being said in verse 16 and verse 17, we have documented evidence, archaeological material that shows this is exactly the way they did things at this period in the Persian Empire. All right, now, a couple of things you want to... I'd ask you a a couple of questions as you thought about. how, How does Darius look at Daniel? I think you can answer that question now. He has a lot of respect for him. He is somewhat devoted to him. And he is exorcised that Daniel is now in this position because of his ineptitude. He got trapped. So... The question now will be, will Darius get a good night's sleep? Is he going to be able to sleep? Well, I say that because it's really significant. Verse 18, then the king went off to his palace and spent the night fasting. No entertainment was brought before him. It was very, very typical. In, and this was true in the Babylonian Empire too, but in the ancient world, but the king, a lot of entertainment, including concubines. They are the house empire prostitutes that served the king. None of that is brought to him. So he's fasting, no entertainment, and the text says sleep fled from him. So he is, he's kind of coming apart in a way. What has happened to Daniel? Verse 19, then the king arose at dawn the break of day and went in haste to the lion's den. Now, I hope you get the sense of verse 19. The king doesn't sleep in that morning. The king doesn't wait till 11 a.m. to go to the place of the lion's den. What does it say? At the break of day. As the sun is coming up, he is racing to the lion's den. Verse 20, and when he had come near the den, he cried. With a troubled voice, the king spoke and said, Daniel, notice this language, servant of the living God. Yeah. That's an extraordinary statement. Yeah. As your God, but notice again, it's not my God, it's your God, whom you constantly serve and able to deliver you from the lion." And Daniel spoke to the king, O king, live forever. It's a typical address of the king. My God sent his angel. Now that's singular. Not angels, angel. And shut the lion's mouth. Now, I cannot be dogmatic here. I really can't. But it seems at least reasonable. As in chapter three, verse twenty-five, we argued that was a theophany that rescued Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Remember that yes. in, the, in the in the fiery furnace. That it's again. This is the angel of the Lord. This yeah. is a theophany. Remember, I wrote that in the board. An appearance of God, and shut the lion's mouth. It doesn't. The text doesn't require that. But the text allows for that. As with chapter 3, this is the pre-incarnate Christ. This is the second person of the Trinity. This
1: would be Jesus Christ.
0: That's correct. That's correct. Now, again, in chapter 3, verse 25, I can be dogmatic about that. I think that is Jesus. Here, it's an inference. Because it's singular, angel, and it therefore could be, I can't be dogmatic, could be the angel of the Lord, which is the pre-incarnate Christ. And they have not harmed me, inasmuch as I was found innocent before him. And to him there is God. And also toward you, O king, I have committed no crime. And the king was very pleased and gave orders for Daniel to be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den. No injury whatsoever was found on him, because he had trusted in his God. Now if you go over to And I'd encourage you to do that for just a real quick minute. Over to the book of Hebrews, chapter 11. If you know what chapter 11 is in the book of Hebrews, that's the Hall of Faith. This is the great um, listing of person after person after person after person after person who put their faith in God. In verse 11... Uh, verse 32 lists a, a variety of people. And then verse 33, Who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of the lions. That's Daniel. It's just an, a, an itemization of a whole bunch of extraordinary things that God accomplished because people in, in the Old Testament... What is it that, for, Hebrew what? Hebrews 11, 33, verse 33. So... The Bible is affirming, and this is the point I I want to make here about verse 23. The Bible is affirming that it is the faith of Daniel, the trust of Daniel in his God, that found the response of God being faithful to him. He's not going to be ripped apart by the lions. And so God is faithful. And as Daniel's faith is now affirmed, he's an incredible testimony to a pagan empire of the worthwhile nature of trusting in Daniel's God. This is a witness. This is a witness of the faithfulness, trustworthiness, sovereignty, and power of Daniel's God, the one true and only God, which is the point. All right? Yes.
2: Yeah. Why do we think that he's uh, recriminating Jesus Christ in this when it says the angel why, why wouldn't it think that is the
0: Gabriel uh, it could be it is, it's not named there it's, it's only an inference there are a number of instances in the Old Testament Joshua uh, before he goes into the land for conquest as an example where it says the angel of the Lord appears and he that is in this case Joshua bows down and begins to worship him and this angel of the Lord says don't stop worshiping it doesn't say that mm-hmm. Same thing as Gideon in Judges chapter 6, exactly the same thing. And therefore, Mark, and it's, it's an inference, the angel of the Lord, or singular, the angel, is the pre-incarnate Christ. It's a theophany. It's an appearance of God. Uh, and so, I, you know, it, it doesn't have to be. In chapter 3, verse 25, there's, in my view, there's no doubt that's a theophany. Here, it's an inference. But the, the only reason I, I, I stress that is it's singular, his angel, which in the New, Old Testament, a couple of places, that reference is often used as reference to the angel of the Lord, a theophany, pre-incarnate appearance of the second person of the Trinity. I, that's not, I'm not, you know, I'm not pounding the table on that. It's okay. just a possibility. Right. Chapter 3, verse 25, there's no I doubt. I was
2: wondering if it's in any kind of the old, because you, you, you study the old, you know, language of the Bible does it refer to the spirit of God, or it just no. me- mean always means the angel? It always uh, refers to the angel yes. of God. Yes, it doesn't have in like sometimes not, you use. Well, now, remember, terminology
0: different. That's right. Now, when, when you say always, I'm not sure what you mean by always, but different. When, when the, the context, the context always helps us to understand whether this is the angel of the Lord or not. And it's and what I mean. There are a couple of instances in the Old Testament where an angel appears to somebody, and they bow down, and the angel says, "Don't do that. Right. Okay. Don't worship me."
2: Yeah.
0: In Joshua, in Judges, uh, in Joshua and Gideon, Judges six, the angel it says the angel of the Lord appears and speaks and all that, and, the and they bow down and worship. And the angel of the Lord doesn't say, "Don't do that." The angel of the Lord accepts that worship. So, that okay, the only way to put that together is that is a pre-incarnate appearance of God. It's the second person of the Trinity. He's accepting worship. You follow me? Yes. Mm-hmm. And then the Bible does give us indication, there aren't a lot of those actually, but the Bible does give us indication, and you'll see one in Daniel chapter 10, where one of the angels is named, and it is Gabriel or Michael. Mm-hmm. They're the two major ones where they're named. Michael is the only one who's called an archangel. Gabriel's not called an archangel. We can infer that he is, but he's not called that. So, and I'm getting way, I, maybe I shouldn't gotten into this, but it's, it's God, is it's this angel, it's singular. There's no question that God is the one who shut the line. No, there's no doubt about that. And so the miracle is based on a response to Daniel's faith. That's the connection we make. All right?
2: W- w- uh, one more question. Why the king, with all the things that he sees around him, and he sees in Daniel, did not become a believer in God himself. You'll have to ask the Lord that in heaven. I don't know. Because, like you know, there is people who can see all those yeah. wonders, and yeah. and he he knows exactly who the God of Daniel. Yeah. But he doesn't want to accept him. He doesn't want to worship him. He doesn't want to follow him. Isn't that interesting?
0: Well, it is. I mean, it's 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 the it's the acknowledgement of who he is. But I think. What we would say, Mark, is all Darius is doing is he's bringing Yahweh into his circle of gods. Mm-hmm. One, one of the one of one, the yes.
1: one.
0: In other words, uh, the, the Persian court uh, at this time, the Persian court, they are they are Zoroastrians. That's who they are. Yeah. That's the that's the that is the religion of the Persian Empire. the gods. Huh?
2: Which multiple gods? God of the, yeah, well, the you of the you have
0: Ahura Mazda is the chief god, but it's a god. It's a world of lots of spirits and so on. But Zoroastrian um, is a quasi monotheist god, really. But anyway, I think all Darius is doing is just bringing Yahweh into a circle of of, of supernatural beings. A- even as we read his decree in verse twenty six. Um, he is making some extraordinary claims about Daniel's God. But it is not possible from verse 26 to say, the language doesn't, doesn't mean it's not possible, but the language doesn't seem to indicate that, that he is saying Yahweh, Daniel's God, is the one true and only God, he's my God. That's not what he's saying. He's not, he says just one of those gods. Yeah, I think so. One sure. of the gods
1: couldn't he be saying that, that he's recognizing him as a living God, but uh, and and not his own God, but that he recognizes him in some distinctive way. Sure, it, it seems like he, maybe even more so than these other gods because.
0: Well, yes. I mean, yeah. I mean, we're not actually there yet, but we'll soon be there. But uh, because I want want to do one more thing what happens to the guys who make the accusation? But that's what verse 24 is all about. That's interesting. But um, I I want to, can you hold on just a minute? Because I do want to talk about the language that he uses here. I I saw a couple, yeah. Yeah, just
1: taking this chunk that we just went through, in your opinion, would you say that it was more racially motivated as
0: far as how they wanted to dispose of him since he was in charge of one-third of the the satraps. And I I liken it back to early, you know, the late 1800s or or early 1900s where if an African
1: American man was put in charge of whites, there would be this huge issue with that because they're dismissing their own religions, their own gods, when they're putting a 30-day halt on praying to anybody else except for the king, right? So obviously they don't respect their own multiple gods that they have in place, so
0: that leads me to think that it's almost purely racially driven since he's an outsider, he's not
1: one of us. But Darius obviously saw him in a completely different light. He did, he did. Do do you think it would be?
2: They were envy of his uh, righteousness, Envy of his statue or stature. You were envy of his integrity. But I don't it think it has and, anything to do but, with race. Maybe it well, does. Well, but I was on the same yeah, race.
0: yeah, I'm not. I'm not sure. I completely agree, and I don't know if we even want to use the word race. Ethnicity, Ethnicity. is maybe another. Because these are all Semitic peoples, <laughs> but the Persians, the, the Persians have a history of incredible arrogance toward any other group other than it, because the Persians are not Arabs. Mm. And today, I and mean, that's really important today, because Iran, which is Persia, Iran is just the modern name for Persia, the Iranian, the Persians, Iran, they do not like the Arabs.
1: They do not like
0: the Arabs at all. They regard themselves as superior to the Arabs. And what fuels that today in the context of the 21st century is that the Persians are Shiite Muslims. Whereas the vast majority of Arabs, not all, but the vast majority of Arabs, are Sunni Muslims. And you know those two don't get along at all. So that fuels all that. Now, going back to Daniel, the, the issue with, with, and that becomes very, very clear when you read uh, how they address him and how they think about him, he is one of those Jews. He's one of those people from Judea that we brought, that Nebuchadnezzar the Babylonian brought into exile. Now, one of the things, uh, let me go a step further because this is really important. One of the things that happens with the Persian Empire is this man, Cyrus. And what we don't know is if in chapter 6 this has occurred yet or not. But Cyrus, in 539 B.C., is going to issue a decree, in 539 B.C., a decree that is going to allow the Jews to go back to their homeland. And that decree, and I I think I mentioned that last week, there are many, many, many copies of that, uh, both in the Bible and in a lot of other places that we found but the other amazing thing about that decree is that the Persian Empire also says, we will finance the rebuilding of the temple and of the city. We will finance it out of the treasury of the Persian Empire. And Ezra, the book of Ezra, the book of Nehemiah, is a, how that occurs. And it's, it's difficult. They have to keep reminding the Persian rulers of what Cyrus had said. But it, it occurred. It happened. And, that's, and so what happens there with Cyrus is Cyrus changes some of that thinking. I want to build an empire which recognizes the validity of everybody in my empire. And I'm going to allow them to go back. Because that decree did not only apply to the Jews, it applied to everybody. Everyone that had been conquered by the Babylonians and taken into exile can go back to the homeland. But the Bible's only interested in one people, the Jewish people. And as we started last week, remember, in Isaiah 44 and 45, it is God who is superintending all these events and raises up Cyrus to accomplish this purpose.
1: And what about all the other Jews? I I was thinking, as I was reading the last weeks of this, you always have uh, Daniel's friends, three friends, what about the other 10,000 or whatever?
0: Well, it's, it's, it's tens of
1: thousands. Ten, tens yeah,
0: tens of thousands a couple of hundred, hundred thousand, thousand. I mean,
1: like bound to the king. Did they have mm-hmm. corporate things where they bowed to the king? Or did they just do it without putting their heart into it? You know, you don't know what I'm saying. I mean, I, I wonder about the rest of the Jews. I mean were that. they slaves? Were they
0: slaves? They really weren't. They really were not slaves. Uh, Jeremiah and Ezekiel, they help us to understand that. They lived in little villages. Those villages were southwest of Babylon. And one of the, there are, we, the names are in the book of Ezekiel, and we've, we've found the archaeological remains of those. But one of those villages was called Tel Aviv, which is the reason in 1909 when the Jewish pioneers started to build a city along the Mediterranean just north of Joppa, they called it Tel Aviv, naming it after Ezekiel. Because what did Ezekiel say in chapter 36 and 37? God's going to bring the Jews back to their land. And so, I mean, it's just really, it's cool. This stuff really fits together. But, uh, oh, so many bunny trails here, I'm not sure which one I'm on anymore, but... um,
1: I mean, the testimony of the rest of the Jews out there. Yeah,
0: well, the interesting thing about coming back from the exile, Tom, is the vast majority of Jews do not go back to Judah. They stay in Persia. That's why up until... Up until the 1980s, the second largest concentration of Jews in the world was in Iran. Any at all? That was the second largest concentration. Why? Because of what we have been reading about. They were taken in exile, and they choose not to go back. If you, if you itemize the number of people that go back under Ezra and Nehemiah, it's about 55,000. The vast majority of them stay. The Book of Esther is about the Jews who stay because Esther's a Jew and she stays. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm saying all that because that it's, it's just really, really, really important that you, you, you conclude something. It's not until the modern era, post-1948, that you see Jewish people in the world really starting to go back to their land because they are dispersed, they're everywhere. And the second largest concentration, used to be the largest concentration, is in the United States. And the Jewish people in the United States don't want to go to Israel. They're comfortable. They're protected. They don't have to. Whereas if you're in, you know, Lithuania or in Russia, I mean, that's still not nice to live there if you're a Jew. So anyway, I'm saying all that because that is really, really an important part of the historical fact. And there was a book that came out oh, about a year and a half ago which documents all this.
1: <laughs> Who wrote it? Who wrote that book? <laughs> what was the name of that book? <laughs> so but
2: but, but uh, you're talking about Iran. It was Iran and majority of Iraq as well. It's not only Iran that most of That's
0: the right. The southern half of Iraq. Yeah. Saying, you know, all, mm-hmm. all of that is right. all together, yeah.
2: It was That's under right. the Persian Empire. So. That's right. And this is why they want to take it back.
0: Yeah. And, uh, and yeah, so anyway, all right, let's go back to Daniel chapter six. We're in a bunny trail here. Good night. Um, uh, verse it, it, twenty-four. It, it, see,
2: the bunny trail is because everything in the Bible is relevant to the time it, that you live in. It, you're right. And you know, and just, all the stories and the history of that stuff. It's not. It, you know, you shouldn't be frustrated. It's it just, makes it
0: validates the Bible. It, it makes our era come alive. Mm-hmm. Why things are happening, the way they're happening. Then the king gave orders and brought these men. Verse twenty-four, who had maliciously accused Daniel. I love that, don't you? And cast them in their children, their wives, into the lion's den. They had not reached the bottom of the den before the lions overpowered them and crushed all their bones. That's a horrible verse, isn't it? Yeah, why <laughs> the, the wives and It's called teleonic justice. It's God's justice: an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. <laughs> no,
1: you know
0: that's a that's a trouble but that I don't want to. This is a very, very important principle. Yeah. Oh, this is the justice of the Bible. Really? It's called talion. Tele- no, I thought that was... Cliche. No, it's really that's, really, that's a really important word. No, that's another bunny trail. All right, so, but that's, it's, it's God's justice. Now, it's the justice of the Persian Empire, but they made the accusation, so what... What's supposed to happen to Daniel happens to them. Then Darius the king wrote to all the peoples, nations, and men of every language who are living in the land, may your peace abound. Now this is the world decree. I make a decree that in all dominion my kingdom are to fear and tremble before the God of Daniel. Please note, not my God, but the God of Daniel. Now I'd ask you, this was part of your homework, but also it's in your notes too. There are five key statements about Daniel's God, in this decree. First of all, it says, for he is a living God, enduring forever. That's really, really, it's an important statement. He's a God who's alive. He's not a dead God, a God that's a piece of stone or a piece of wood. He's a living God. Now, that, that just tells you something about how he is thinking about Daniel's God. He's not a dead God. He's not a God of wood. He's not a God of stone. He's a living God. Doors forever. Number two, his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. He is a God who rules over a kingdom. And it is impossible to destroy that kingdom. Third, his dominion will be forever. He is a sovereign. He is, his dominion cannot be destroyed and he is sovereign over that. It'll, it'll, it'll endure forever. Now, because he's living, and because he rules over a kingdom that cannot be destroyed, he will rule forever, he delivers. He rescues. That's number four. That's really important. Daniel, God intervenes in history. He's not an absentee landlord. He's not a God who creates a nice world, winds it up, and lets it run on natural law. He is a God who intervenes in history. I just saw it, Darius is saying. He delivers, he rescues. And the fifth point is he performs signs and wonders. That phrase, signs and wonders, is used all over the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament. It's his miracles he not only intervenes in answer to prayer and in response to people's faith, he does miraculous things. We would put it in our scientific world, he does things that are contrary to natural law, which is what a miracle is. So this is a God who's alive, who rules over a kingdom that will last forever. He intervenes in history and he does miraculous things in history. Now that's a decree in heaven and on earth. He has delivered, Daniel, from the power of the lions. End of decree. Verse 28. So this Daniel enjoyed success in the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Remember this, the structure. Cyrus is the big guy. Darius is right underneath him. All right. Um... We did it. I was a little skeptical there with all these questions, but we did get through the chapter. It's again not exactly, but this decree is a little bit like, although Nebuchadnezzar's decree is much more personal that we saw in chapter uh, chapter four after Nebuchadnezzar's mental illness and his his decree. Remember that. So there's some similarity here. But, uh, so you have this this extraordinary man Daniel this just incredible man of character and integrity standing for God trusting in God and God providentially cares for him and allows him to be an extraordinary witness. And even today even today now you it's you and I can't go to Iran but there if you go to Iran there is a huge memorial and monument to Daniel to Daniel to Daniel Mm-hmm. I have PowerPoint slides on all this stuff when I teach. I can't use it here, obviously, but it's, it's I mean, you and I can't go there. It's, it's not wise to travel to Iran anymore, but someday maybe it'll be open, certainly in the kingdom of Jesus. So we'll lead trips and we'll go to Iran together, okay, during the <laughs> kingdom of Jesus, and we'll get to see yeah. all this stuff. But Daniel is not a figure that the Iranian government suppresses. Daniel is a hero. Uh, I'm sorry, I,
1: <laughs> Daniel is a hero that's the
0: Lord but uh, and as is, and I, I told you before there's there's a great the tomb of Cyrus is a major uh, tourist spot again things have changed a lot in Iran but still is because these these are the heroes of the Persian Empire this is the heritage of the Persians their historical heritage and they don't they don't ignore this. They don't ignore that. And by the way, there is also a huge monument to Esther and Mordecai
2: mm.
0: in Iran. In Iran, yes, because so
2: why, why, why do they need to destroy the Jews then, you know?
0: Well, I mean, well, uh, <laughs> because they rejected Islam. Yeah. That's the reason. <laughs> All right. Now next week um we're back at home instead. Next week, we start chapter 7. And now, chapter 7 is not chronological. Chapter 7 is about a dream Daniel has. Not Nebuchadnezzar, not Darius. It's a dream Daniel has. And it's, it, is, it is a very, very important dream. So it's a little harder. The notes are laid out there. But I'd like you to read that as best you can. You'll notice now this is as you, as you read it. You'll notice, like chapter 2, the statue that Nebuchadnezzar sees is a four-kingdom sequence. You follow what I mean by that? Like in the, the statue that Nebuchadnezzar saw in his dream in chapter 7, it's got four major kingdoms. Then the stone cut without human hands in chapter 2 destroys that statue. This isn't the same dream, but it parallels it. Four-kingdom sequence, and I want you to read that. And then I want you to, as you get to chapter seven, you get to verse 13 in chapter 7, I want, you to, I, want to answer, I want you to answer this question for me. One, like a son of man, comes up to the Ancient of Days. You and I have the 66 books of the Bible. We have a lot more revelation than the people did in Daniel's time. Who is the Ancient of Days, and who's the Son of Man? Ancient of man? Da, shh, don't answer. I didn't answer. Oh, okay. That, that, you'll see it in verse 13. Who is the ancient of days and who is the son of man? It says, one like a son of man comes up the ancient days and receives a kingdom, dominion, authority. I want I just want you to think about that biblically from all 66 books of the Bible. You and I have a much greater capacity of understanding what's going on here. Now, the other thing I want you to observe, and it gets hard, the second half of the chapter is really hard. That little horn that's mentioned. There's a little horn, a ruler, a little horn that breaks off. He has a name in the New Testament. See if you can figure out who that is. Again, the New Testament helps us to understand who that is. Now, chapter 7, we get into some hard stuff. But don't take off your thinking cap. great questions today. Just really good stuff. So I, hope you're, uh, I hope you're following all this. All right? So that's chapter 7 for next week. Let me pray. Father, we're thankful that we serve a God who is alive, a God who hears and answers prayer, a God that honors faith, a God that honors men of integrity and honesty, Regardless of our enemies, we stand for you. We represent you. Help us to have the stamina and the courage to represent you. We ask your blessing on these men. May we be Daniels, men of of deep conviction, men of strong faith, Men, men of dedication and commitment to you. Because as Daniel, we want to do the same. We have different responsibilities, different roles but we still have the capacity to represent you to a world that desperately needs to see what a man of God looks like. But we want to represent you well. May we be men of faith and integrity as we bring glory and honor to our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. See you next week.